Good morning, Christ Community Church. Yeah, just a special greeting to those of you in DeKalb who are joining us now. Thanks for loaning us your pastor, your campus pastor, Paul, was doing a worship focus and announcements in St. Charles. You guys got a great leader. And those of you joining us in Blackberry Creek right now, you are celebrating your 10th anniversary of being adopted as one of our campuses. And so we just want to greet you and say congratulations. Yeah. And... Uh, Another, as this is a transition in leadership for those of you at Blackberry Creek, another praise God for the years of faithful service of uh, John and Sarah Culver, and we look forward to what God's going to do through the leadership of Pastor Eric Hayes now at your campus. Uh, we're going to bow together in prayer because we need God's help as we explore this topic of conflict. It's, it's not a difficult concept to understand, it's a really difficult one to apply. Okay, so let's ask God's Holy Spirit to be our tutor. Uh, Holy Spirit of God, we look to you to be our life coach right now. Open the pages of your Holy Word in a way that we understand. And then God, we need the most help when it comes to figuring out what's going on in our own hearts, our own relationships. So give us a ruthless honesty as, as we dig into this topic today to examine our own patterns of behavior and what needs to be corrected, what needs your direction, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two college lacrosse teams, one of them from Western Michigan, one of them from Dayton, uh, they were in the middle of a game this last fall. They had worked their way to a tie, and suddenly a lightning storm came in, and they had to call off the game. So they were determined to figure out a winner. All right, so I want to show you how they did it. They asked their two captains to square off against each other, and somebody ca caught this conflict, caught it on their cell phone, and then posted it on Instagram. Watch how they settled the lacrosse game. Here we go. Don't you love it? Don't you wish all the conflicts in your life were resolved so easily? So, you know, if you're, if you're, you're arguing with your employer these days about a pay raise, you just challenge her to rock, paper, scissors, right? Okay, right now. Uh, or, or you're two parents and there's a disagreement how to discipline one of your kids. Rock, paper, scissors, honey. Let's go for it. Or your neighbor says that you just built your fence on his property. Okay, rock, paper, scissors. Come on, dude, let's go. Or, you know, you got a friend and you say she needs to apologize to you and, and, and she's feeling like you need to apologize to her. Just do a rock, paper, scissors. Uh, unfortunately, real life doesn't work that way. Conflicts aren't resolved that easily. So welcome to a three-part study of God's Word, how to resolve conflict, which we're calling rock, paper, scissors. Now, here's the basic outline for this series. 
We're going to take a look at the before picture, the during picture, and the after picture of conflict. So today we're, we're dealing with the before picture. Before you march off to conflict with somebody else, how do you get prepared for it in a God-honoring way? What does the Bible have to say about that? We're calling today's sermon, Before the Gloves Come Off. Okay, before you, you start bare knuckles brawling with somebody else, you know, here's some things you need to learn from God's Word. Next week, we're going to take a look at how, you know, the during picture, how to resolve the conflict, the steps to go through. And then the final week is going to be the aftermath. What, what happens after the conflict has been, uh, the, the resolution has been attempted and it just got messier, got nastier? What, what do you do then? And so I pass that off to Pastor Clayton to have to address because it's the toughest of the, of the three subjects. So today I want you to get your outline out of your program, fill it in as we go along or if you've got it on your tablet or your phone, because I guarantee what we're going to learn from God's Word today, the main points, they're worth posting somewhere where you will see them and remember what you learn next time you face a conflict. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. And uh, here's a general word about the scriptures that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at five narratives, okay? A narrative is a Bible story. And each story is going to teach us a principle, a ground rule for preparing ourselves for a conflict. So with each story, I'll try to give you a little bit of background. So the first point that we're going to learn from Acts chapter 6 is to see the potential in conflict. Okay, to see the potential. So write that down in your outline. See the potential in conflict. And let me give you the context of the Acts 6 story. Uh, we're big around here uh, in studying the Bible, and we've taught you a four-step Bible study approach called COMA, C-O-M-A, and the C stands for context. So if you want to understand the Bible better, every time you pick it up to read it, learn something about the historical background to the passage you're about to look at. So we're about to look at Acts 6. Let me give you the, the context, the C, okay? This is the launch of the early church, the first century church. Now, shortly before this, Jesus Christ has been crucified. He's been raised from the dead. For about a month and a half, he's been hanging out with his followers, teaching them how to behave after he departs, and then he returns to heaven. So this fledgling group of Christ followers begins to grow, and it grows, and it grows, and it, suddenly it's numbering in the thousands. This is the first megachurch in history, okay? And because it's located in Jerusalem, most of the, the, the Christ followers in that church come from Jewish backgrounds, However, even though they're all Jewish in background, there, there are two basic camps in this church. There are Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. Now, Hellenistic Jews means that for the most part, they were born and raised outside Israel. So, so, so they, they, they come from a Greek culture, Greek background. They've moved to Israel. They're immigrants, if you would. The Hebraic Jews, however, are people who have bor been born and raised in Jerusalem. They are true blue. They are purebred Jews. And they have a tendency to look down their noses at the Hellenistic, at the Greek Jews. So this creates some tension in the church. And in Acts 6, it bubbles over, boils over, because of a particular issue. Here's the issue. The, the issue is the church had a program for distributing food to the widows in the church, caring for their daily needs. But the Hellenistic, the Greek Jews, felt like they were being discriminated against as the immigrants. They felt like they, their widow, widows weren't getting their fair share of the food distribution. So this is where we pick up the story, Acts chapter 6. Follow along as I read, beginning at verse 1. 
says, in those days when the number of disciples, we're speaking of Christ followers in general, the number of Christ followers was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12, okay, we're talking about Jesus' original 12 apostles, disciples, minus Judas, okay? So the 12 gathered all the disciples, the Christ followers together, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word, God's word. And this is the word of the Lord. Yes, thank you, God, for giving us your word. Now, if I had been a leader in that early church, if I'd been one of the 12, here's what I might have been tempted to conclude when, when I heard the complaints of these Hellenistic Jews. Really, you're accusing me and my buds here of ripping off little old ladies with the food distribution? I mean, do you know who you're talking to? You're, you're talking to the 12, okay? You're talking to the godliest guys in the church right here. See, the real problem is not us. The real problem is you Hellenistic Jews, you're whiners, okay? You, 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 you immigrants coming from a different background here. You're one of those minority groups that com continually complains about injustices. That's your problem. But that's not how the leaders of the church handle the problem at all. Instead, they saw this conflict as an opportunity to grow. So let me tell you what they did. They, they said to this group that had gathered, they said, well, it sounds to us like this is an administrative problem. The food's not being equally distributed. Now, that's not our job, okay? Our job as pastoral leaders here, God's called us to teach his word and to pray for people and to counsel them. But what we need, we need some really sharp administrative types to oversee a food distribution program. So we're going to choose seven people, seven sharp administrators to do the food distribution. Now, here's what's really cool about how they resolve this. If your Bible's open to Acts 6, look at the next verse, verse 5. It's a verse that's got the names of these seven guys they chose. Now, when you're reading your Bible, this is typically the kind of verse you skip over, right? Like, who needs to know these names? But let me tell you something really interesting about these names. They're all Greek names. You say, well, why is that significant? Think about it. The leaders of the church said, okay, if these Hellenistic Greek Jews feel like they're being treated unjustly, let's bend over backwards to make sure they know they're getting a fair shake. In fact, let's take some people from their camp and put them in charge of the whole thing. What a wonderful solution. And it's, it's, it's so wonderful that not only is the conflict resolved, but good things happen. Go down to verse 7. It says, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests, talking about Jewish priests, became obedient to the Christian faith. So they saw the conflict, the potential in the conflict. Something really good happened as a result of it. Now friends, many of us view conflict as something that's really bad. It's, it's just totally negative. And so we tend to respond in one of two extreme ways to conflict. We either avoid it at all costs, we run the other way, or we march into it like we're going off to war. We're going to win this battle. See, it's either flight or it's fight. But in this particular case, 
they chose not to view conflict as something inherently bad, but as something that had potential in it. Why do we view it as inherently bad? Well, maybe we grew up in a home where there was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of raised voices. There was screaming. There was door slamming. There was stomping of feet. There were things thrown around. And so we're, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. Or, or maybe we've got a hair-trigger temper, and we, we don't want to get involved in conflict because we're scared we're going to lose it. Or maybe we're not that articulate. We, we avoid conflict because when we get in conflict with people who are good at verbal jousting, they just talk circles around us. Or maybe we avoid conflict because, frankly, the, the people we're having a conflict with, we don't like them. We don't want to resolve the conflict. We want to go on not liking them. I want you to think of a conflict situation in your life right now. In fact, throughout this series, this is going to be really helpful. In order to apply what we learn from God's Word, it'll be good to bring a conflict situation in mind. Now, it may be a conflict with the person sitting next to you right now. You know, whether that's your mom or your dad or your spouse. or It may be a conflict with somebody at school or at work or in the neighborhood. Okay, how do you view that conflict that you just brought to mind? Is it something bad? You just assume do without, or is there potential in that conflict? Romans 8, verse 28, the Apostle Paul says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. What do you think Paul means by all things? He means all things. Does all things include conflict? We know that in all things, conflict included, God works for the good of those who love him. You say, wait a minute, God can work out good? God can bring about good purposes through conflict? Absolutely. Like what? Well, you resolve that conflict well, I guarantee your character's going to grow. You resolve that conflict with the other person well, and that relationship is going to be stronger. You, you may never be best buds, but if you resolve it, it's going to be a better relationship. You resolve that conflict well, and you may come up with creative solutions to the problem that you, you never would have thought of had there been no conflict. That's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 6, and the church grew. So see the potential in conflict. Get it? Good. Let's go to number two. Here's a second story and a second lesson. In preparing for conflict, refrain from anger. Refrain from anger. And I want you to go to Genesis chapter 4. That's an easy passage to find because Genesis is the very first book in your Bible. And you're familiar with the story, the first human couple, Adam and Eve. They have two sons named Cain and Abel. And the brothers don't get along. There's hostility between the two of them, the real culprit. I mean, this is the original case of sibling rivalry, friends. And the real culprit here is Cain. Cain hates his brother. Cain's got a, a real anger problem. And one day the scripture says that the two brothers bring an offering to God. So Abel, because he's a shepherd, he brings a sacrificed animal to the Lord as an offering. And his brother Cain, because he's a farmer, he brings some of his crops as an offering. And scripture says that God was pleased. Abel's offering found favor with God, but he rejected Cain's offering. Now, the Bible doesn't say that the offerings were rejected because of the offering themselves. There was nothing to do with the offering. It had to do with the attitude of each brother as they brought the offering to God, as we're about to see. So Cain's offering is rejected, and he is incensed. He's crazy. 
crazy angry with his brother. This is where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it, Cain. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So God warns Cain to handle his anger, to restrain it before something really bad happens. But Cain refuses to listen. Cain nurses his bitterness until one day it, it, it boils over into murder. How many of you know that anger is not your friend if you're trying to resolve a conflict? Okay, Anger is, is not helpful. If you're marching off to sit down with someone and resolve your differences, but there's any anger in your spirit, it's going to come out. Okay, all it takes is one sarcastic remark from the other person. All it takes is one word of profanity. All it takes is one judgment on their part, and boom, the gloves come off. The gloves come off. You know, I love the words of the great theologian Mike Tyson on this score. You know, everyone has a plan until he gets hit in the face. <laughs> that is just a great line, isn't it? So when it comes to conflict resolution, you could have this great plan. We're going to sit down. We're going to work it out. But let me tell you, if there's any lingering bitterness, any anger in your spirit that you haven't resolved, all it takes is one verbal jab from the other person in the face, and it's all over. It's all over. So how do we restrain our anger? How do we refrain from it? Somebody's hurt us. They've annoyed us. They've lied about us. They've spread a rumor about us. And we're planning to address this conflict with them. What do we do with our anger? Well, we, we could pray one of those quickie prayers, God help me not to be angry, and suddenly we'll be completely chill, right? Does that work for you? It doesn't work for me. Let, me. let me give you another method of refraining from anger. Okay, this is something you need to rehearse. And there are two sides to this something you, you need to rehearse. Side one goes like this. You rehearse, you remind yourself out loud in the mirror, if it helps, that you yourself have been guilty of some of the same behaviors that are making you angry with this other person. True? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, I find this especially true of myself when I drive. See, I get, I'm an impatient driver. I get aggravated when somebody changes lanes in front of me without a turn signal or they tailgate or they're distracted because they're on their cell phone. And then I stop and I realize, well, wait a second. Sometimes I, me, sometimes I change lanes without using a turn signal or tailgate or get distracted on my cell phone, hands-free, of course. I'm guilty of the same things that aggravate me when I see that behavior in somebody else. So that's the first side of the rehearsal. Here's the flip side of the rehearsal. Then if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you've got to remind yourself that God took all that bad stuff in you, all those, those sins, and he laid them on his son, Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for my sins because I put my faith, my trust, I've surrendered my life to him. Friends, that's just amazing. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. Because when we go our way instead of God's way, something we do every day, 
We disconnect from the giver of life and we die. We die on the inside. Eventually we die physically, uh, not only spiritually, but eternally. And Jesus came to earth to take the death we deserve to die. So when I'm really honked off at somebody else, i got to remind myself, side one, I'm guilty of some of the same stuff that, that makes me so angry with this other person. And side two, and Christ has given his life on the cross to pay for my sins. See, I need to treat that other person like God in Christ has treated me. And we're going to talk more about how you do that in a couple of weeks, Pastor Clayton, talking about forgiveness, how you appropriate God's forgiveness in your life and toward other people. Just a footnote to this point, too. I've been talking about surrendering to Christ, and I just got to put in a little promo word here. So in a few weeks' time, March 11 and 12, we do our next baptism. We do these three times a year. Hundreds of people every year get baptized around Christ Community Church because we've taught what the Bible teaches, that when you make your decision to surrender to Christ, you follow that up with going public in baptism. So if you've made a decision to follow Christ, but you've never followed it up with publicly proclaiming that in baptism, I encourage you to go to one of our orientation classes, you know, learn what baptism's all about, and consider being part of that baptism on the 11th and 12th of March. So number one, you got to see the potential in conflict. Before you march into it, see it as a good thing, something God's going to work through. Number two, refrain from anger. Number three, understand the other person. Understand the other person. Now, I want to go to another story. This one's in your New Testament. So flip to the right, okay? You're all, all the way at the beginning in Genesis. Keep going into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to give you a little context, a little C here behind this story. So the very first story I told you from Acts chapter 6 had to do with the early church that was all Jewish. But, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is now writing to a church in the city of Corinth that is mostly pagan in their background. Before these people became followers of Jesus, they worshipped pagan gods, okay? Greek and Roman gods at pagan temples. And typically, on occasion, they would bring an animal sacrifice to this god. They would place the meat of this sacrifice before their god, Funny thing about these gods, they didn't have much appetite because the next morning the meat would still be there. So what are you going to do with the meat? So the pagan temples would sell the meat at the local meat market. Now this created some divisiveness among the Christ followers in this church because some of them, having come out of this background, said, I'm not touching that meat. You know, I know it's been offered to idols. I used to do that. I'm not doing that anymore. Other Christ followers said, what are you guys talking about? You know, the, these idols that we used to worship, there's nothing divine about them. They're phony. They're false. We now worship the one true living God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to buy the meat. I'm going to slap it on my grill. I'm going to smother it with BBQ sauce. I'm going to invite my neighbors over for a patio party. Come and join me. So, so there was this tension between these two groups in the church. Conflict. How did Paul teach the Corinthians to resolve this conflict? Well, he mostly addressed the second group. And he said to them, you know, you guys are theologically right, but you're relationally wrong. Okay, you're theologically right when you say that the pagan gods are not really gods, and so there's no harm in eating meat that's been offered to them. But you're relationally wrong because you've, you've made no attempt 
to understand the people in the other camp. So if, if your Bible is open to 1 Corinthians 8, look, look at verse 7. Paul addresses this second group and he says, you know, not everyone possesses this knowledge, this correct theological knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. You, you understand what, what Paul's saying here? He says, you guys who think there's nothing wrong with buying the meat, grilling the meat, and uh, okay, that's cool. He said, but the, but the people in this other group, they're just out of pagan background. They're still thinking of it as having been offered to a God. So when they get pressured by you to eat the meat, they feel bad. It kind of wrecks their conscience. So you get an A in theology, but you absolutely flunk human relationships. You get an F in sensitivity and empathy and understanding. Now, do we see how this story applies to our lives today? You're facing a conflict with somebody else. You know, maybe it's possible that you've got all the right arguments. Maybe you are absolutely right on every detail. But if you've not made an attempt to understand the other person, then you're, you're terribly wrong. There are a couple of excellent books that I'm going to be recommending during this series, not only because they helped me prepare these sermons, but because they, they've, they've impacted my life. They've taught me something about addressing conflict. One of those books is a book called I Beg to Differ. And these books will be available at, at Resource at our bookshop across four campuses. I Beg to Differ, uh, subtitle of the book, Navigating Difficult Conversations with Truth and Love. The, the author of this book... Uh, a guy named Tim Yulhoff, he cites a medical study that was done on the relationships between doctors and their patients. Now, I want to apologize in advance for those of you who, who are doctors because I'm about to cite an unfavorable statistic, okay? According to this study that was done, the average patient has just 18 seconds to explain what, what's going on, what their problem is, before the doctor jumps in and begins to offer a solution. 18 seconds. Now, I know that's not true of you docs at Christ Community Church. You take much longer. You're more careful with that. But here's Mulehoff's point. He said, you know, we've got to slow down when it comes to diagnosing people we're having a conflict with. See, we're, we're, we're too quick to say, hey, this is how to fix it. And we need to ask questions. We need to be sure that we understand that person's point of view. In fact, Mulehoff says, if we only see one possible interpretation of their behavior, we say, well, this is the explanation. This is why they behave that way. And we're thinking that in our minds, then we're going to be very brittle. We're going to be very narrow in our response to them. He, he uses an example. He says, suppose you've been asked to uh, teach some workshop at work. Okay, so your coworkers are coming and you're going to lead this. And the day you lead it, you're standing up front and 10 minutes into your presentation, the door opens and one of your coworkers shows up late. What do you assume about that coworker? See, so is your interpretation immediately, well, they've got no, no respect for my leadership. If they, if they respected my leadership, they would have been here on time. But, but, but what if they had a sick child at home? And what if they couldn't get out of the house on time and they were scrambling and they were doing their best? You, you, see, you see 
how important it is to understand where a person is coming from before we try to resolve our conflict with them. Proverbs 18, verse 13, a verse we should probably put on a magnet and attach to our refrigerator door, says, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Okay, to make up our mind about what's wrong with that other person before we've heard them out is folly and shame. And Muehlhoff says in his book, I Beg to Differ, he said we should not only seek to understand the person, we should also seek to understand what is the best setting in which to address the conflict. Okay, is, is this a private enough place for us to talk out loud about this thing? Do we have enough time? Are we going to be rushed? Can we have a full conversation? Is there anything going on in that person's life that's got them amped up so that may, maybe this is not a good time to address it? Understanding. Understanding the person, understanding the conflict resolution setting. Make an effort to understand. I, I don't know about you, but one of my greatest weaknesses in addressing conflict is that I make a greater effort to be understood than to understand. You know, I, I want you to understand where I'm coming from on this. See? You, you get where I'm coming from? That's more important to me than understanding you if I'm in a conflict with you. We, we've got to understand that other person for this conflict resolution to be healthy. Here's a fourth ground rule and another Bible story, another narrative. Number four, doubt your own rightness. Doubt your own rightness. Now, go, go to the Old Testament. About seven books in is a book called Joshua. Okay, see if you could find Joshua. Uh, Joshua describes the, the conquest of the promised land. God's people spent over 400 years in slavery in Egypt. God finally delivers them by the hand of Moses. And then under the leadership of General Joshua, they take over the, the promised land, the land of Canaan. A, Cain that uh, a land that was filled with wicked tribes, so wicked that God really wanted to remove them and plant his own people there. And so the conquest is complete, and they're now enjoying their new digs on the west side of the Jordan River. But the nation of Israel is made up of 12 tribes. Two and a half of the tribes come to Joshua and say, uh, Joshua, we got a request. Now, what's that? We would prefer to live on the east side of the Jordan River instead of the, the west side. Is that okay with you? And Joshua says, that's cool. It's a New Living Translation. That's cool. So the two and a half tribes, they go to the east side of the river. They're going to claim that as their real estate. And the minute they cross the river, they find a bunch of big rocks, boulders, and they put them together in an altar. And the, the minute that the group, the nine and a half tribes on the west side of the river, the minute they get word that an altar has been built on the east side of the river, they get crazy angry. They go ballistic. Why? Well, because they know their history. They, they know that throughout their history, their people have wandered away from God and have worshipped false gods at altars, at pagan altars. And so they just assume, they assume this is what the two and a half tribes have done. They've erected an altar to a foreign god. They can't believe this. You're going to get us in so much trouble. God's going to remove his blessing. Bad things are going to happen. So they raise up an army to go confront the two and a half tribes. I mean, they are sure of their own rightness. They are defenders of the one true living God and his honor. Okay, this is, 
This is where we pick up the story. I just want to read one verse. When they confront the leaders of the nine and a half tribes, confront the folks on the east side of the river, verse 16. This is what they say. They say, the whole assembly of the Lord says, I love this. They begin with, we got God's word for you. Okay, this is God, capital G. Listen to us. We're going to tell you what the Lord says. How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? We can't believe you guys are doing this. They were so sure of their rightness, but they were absolutely wrong. In fact, if you read the rest of the story, the two and a half tribes say, wait a second. This is not an altar to a foreign god. See, when we got over to the east side of the river, we wanted to make sure that in future generations, our kids never forget that we belong to you nine and a half tribes on the west side of the river, that we're one people, that we worship the same God whose altar is in the tabernacle, in your territory. And so we built a replica as a reminder of all that on our side. And the nine and a half tribes leaders, they go, oh, Oh my goodness, were they embarrassed. Did they have egg on their face? Their, their self-righteousness had almost cost them a huge unnecessary war, a conflict. Does this ever happen to us? You know, have you ever been in a conflict with somebody else and they, they dared to call your judgment of the facts into question or they had the nerve to accuse you, 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 of being mistaken or being unfair. Before you brush that accusation aside, maybe you ought to weigh it carefully. Maybe you're not as right as you think you are. Just a thought. Maybe you're not as right as you think you are. Ken Sandy is a professional mediator. Ken uh, resolves conflicts between husbands and wives, between business partners, uh, sometimes he's called in to resolve conflicts in churches. And Ken has written a book that I'd also recommend to you, and we're going to carry it resource. Probably the best book on the subject of conflict resolution. There are actually two versions. There's a long version of the book and a short version. The, the long version is called The Peacemaker. And it's so popular, it's been translated into 15 different languages. And the shorter book, if you're, if you're a middle school student or a high school student, great book for you. It's called Resolving Everyday Conflicts. It's just 100 pages long. And in this book, he tells the story of a conflict he was called in to mediate. It was a conflict between a homeowner and the builder who had constructed his home. And there were some defects, according to the owner, in the construction. And when those defects were not fixed, the owner took the builder to court. And they'd been in litigation, very costly litigation, for the better part of a year. And finally, they figure, you know, this is costing us so much money and, and so much time. And let's bring in an outside mediator, see if we can settle this outside of court. So they brought in Ken Sandy. Listen to his description of what happens, happened next. I'll read it from the book. It says, during our first meeting, neither man would admit he'd done anything wrong. Instead, they kept blaming each other and listening to the other person's wrongs. At the end of the meeting, I asked each of them to go home and spend at least 30 minutes praying a simple request. Here's the prayer. You're to pray. Lord, please open my eyes so I can see how I have contributed to this problem. Well, that night, God worked in the builder's heart. 
When we met again the following morning, there was a different look on his face. He asked to speak first, and I nodded for him to go ahead. He humbly itemized the construction defects, admitted that they were all his fault, and promised to move quickly to repair them. The owner was so surprised by this confession, he didn't know what to say. After a pause, he said, well, actually, this isn't entirely your fault. If I hadn't been so obnoxious and self-righteous the first time I talked to you about my concerns, we probably could have resolved this on our own instead of spending the last year in court. No, no, this is more my fault than yours. And Ken Sandy concludes, needless to say, this mediation moved quickly to complete and mutual satisfactory resolution. Doubt your own rightness. I had an opportunity to apply this ground rule to my life recently. So over the the Christmas holidays, uh, for one week there, we had uh, all of our family under one roof. So I had my three grown kids and their three spouses and four grandkids ages three and under, under my roof for seven days and seven nights. (laughs) And, and, and there were times when, when I became angry and upset with the whole deal. Now, I want to explain to you why, because when I do, you'll understand my rightness in this whole situation. <laughs> okay? So sometimes they would make decisions when I was out of the room, when I wasn't around. They would decide to do something, and I had no say in it. And in other times, I would say, I think this would be a really cool idea, and nobody liked my idea. Nobody would want to do anything, you know? And so you see where I'm going? You see how right I was in this, in this whole thing? So, I, you know, I was a bit ticked. I, so I took it to God and, and uh, you know, journaled on it, prayed about it. I, I talked about it to Sue, and, and God and Sue both agreed that I was wrong. <laughs> I hate when that happens. And so my kids have now gone home to their respective homes, and I spent the better part of the next week on FaceTime trying to make amends with my kids, apologizing, calling to say, I'm really sorry. There were times when I I was sullen, I was withdrawn, because I didn't get my, you know, it's kind of embarrassing when you're uh, my age and walk with Jesus as long as I have, that you still don't get it right. It's very humbling. And I had asked him to forgive me. You know, a call to Portland, a call to Chicago, a call to England, for goodness sakes. By, by the way, Ken Sandy in his book, he's got a seven-step how to apologize. Well, it's really, really helpful. Doubt your own rightness. Let me give you one final ground rule. Before you, before you take off the gloves before you go to address the conflict, okay? Here's, here's a final one. Keep the conversation going. Now, we don't have time to address the last story to take a close look at it, so I'm just going to describe it to you briefly, and then I'm going to wrap up. It's found in John chapter 21, and at some point, I encourage you to you know, go home and read this story. It's, it's the story of Jesus resolving a conflict with his best buddy, a guy named Peter. This conflict resolution is so famous that if you go to Israel today, they have actually uh, erected a statue of Jesus and Peter resolving this conflict at the very point where they had their conflict resolution meeting. Uh, In fact, when Sue and I took a group there, a group from Christ's community, to Israel two years ago, by the way, we're going 
in another year or so here. So if you're interested, keep your ears open for that. But when we were there, my wife, Sue, actually did a little Bible devotional from John 21 at this very site where Jesus and Peter made up. So you know the backstory to this, right? So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter disowned him. You know, Jesus was arrested, he was hauled off, he was tortured, he was mocked, he was given a cross to bear to Calvary. Peter totally deserted Jesus and on three separate occasions denied even knowing the guy. I don't know him. So Jesus is raised from the dead and he, he has already met with his disciples, all of them Peter included on several occasions, but things still aren't right. They're still not right with Peter. And so Jesus tracks him down. And this is the lesson for us to learn. Jesus tracks down Peter by the shore of the Sea of Galilee because he's not going to let Peter get away. See, conflicts are messy. Conflicts don't resolve themselves. Listen to me now. Time does not heal all wounds. It's a false saying. And so there are going to be occasions when you, you need to go back again and again and keep, keep the conversation going. Now, next weekend, we're going to learn how to do that, what, what to say when you have that conversation. Okay, let, let me recap what we've learned today. And, and before I do that, I'm going to ask our worship teams across our four campuses to come out for our final song. And we're going to collect our gifts. Just, just a reminder there, too, we did a four-week series. Our last series was on buried treasure. And my prayer has been through, throughout that series was that God would make us a more generous church than we ever have been before. So if that series, if that teaching touched your life, I pray that we'll see that in the offerings that we bring to the Lord. So we're going to do that in just a moment. But let me recap what we've learned today about conflict management. And I'll tell you what I'm praying about this series. See, I always try to have a vision in my mind of what I'd like to see God do as a result of a series. So on a conflict resolution series, what I'd love to see and hear about is that hundreds of people have taken this teaching from God's Word and they've resolved conflicts with spouses, with kids, with neighbors, with work associates. Can you imagine, can you imagine how much more eager people would, would be to hear about Jesus from our lips if we just resolve the conflicts we have with them? So, number one, see the, the potential in conflict. Don't treat it as a bad thing. God's got a good purpose in it. Number two, refrain from anger. And the way you do that is not by praying a quickie prayer, but by rehearsing, I've been guilty of some of the same stuff that makes me angry in others, and Jesus has forgiven me for such because he took my punishment on his cross. And third, understand the other person. Don't, don't just go to be understood. Go to understand, to ask good questions. Number four, doubt your own rightness. There may be something you need to apologize for in this situation. And then finally, keep the conversation going.